Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Joining us now in our studios is Jill Desis, Bloomberg's China EcoGov editor, to take a look uh, at this and to give us some perspective. It seems like U.S.-China relations have improved just a tad, although I don't think they're breaking out the champagne, the champagne uh, Jill. What might we expect from some of these meetings this week? Well, Brian, first of all, I guess I would say that when you compare to where we were uh, just a year ago, U.S.-China relations have actually picked up, I think, quite a bit. Remember, this at this time last year, we were um, in the middle of the whole uh, alleged Chinese spy balloon debacle um, that really, really kind of took off and, and, uh, and heightened tensions here. I think what you're expecting out of this meeting between the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, in, in China this week is, um, you know, uh, Susan Clark, she's expected uh, to meet with a bunch of Chinese and American officials. Um, she's uh, the Her delegation there is supposed to meet with a bunch of uh, senior government officials, local business leaders in China. I think ultimately really, um, you know, just uh, trying to get a handle on what exactly is, you know, happening in terms of U.S. business relations in China. Remember, um, foreign investment in China has, uh, you know, fallen off pretty dramatically over the ca- past couple of years as tensions have uh, increased and during the pandemic. So I think any kind Kind of uh, you know you know any kind of dialogue that these two sides can ultimately have over that would would probably be productive from her perspective. One of the sticking points I think is the, the t- technology, the export controls, and I don't know if the Chamber of Commerce has uh, an opinion on this. Certainly, the White House does, and, and they've been very very strict in disallowing American firms to give China access to some of the most sophisticated equipment when it comes to the manufacturing of, of semiconductors. This seems to be. Um, pretty immovable on the part of the states. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure how much uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would ultimately have uh, um, in terms of leverage or leeway to discuss that with the Chinese side. I'm not sure whether or not that's actually going to come up during these meetings. But yes, I'd say that going into 2024, um, you know, you really saw a ratcheting up of, uh, you know, some concerns over those types of export controls. I mean, we saw at the beginning of the year that the Biden administration was looking to, um, you know, exploring ways to strengthen tech curbs in general. I mean, this has been a long-standing issue uh, between the U.S. and China. We saw this really ratchet up during the Trump administration. This idea of trade curbs and concerns about China's access to advanced technology. We really saw that just accelerate during the Biden administration. I still think that from the Biden administration's perspective, uh, you have um, a lot of uh, uh, the the whole um, uh, Huawei phone uh, issue uh, that unfolded last uh, late last year was really a major headache for the trade um, the Trade Commission. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, sure, because that gets to uh, a delicate area, which is, I mean, to be fair, the U.S. is not trying to deny China access to high levels of technology, only the highest levels. And that's what that Huawei phone sort of suggested was there was the danger that they were going too far. 
Yes. Um, and I mean, I think since then, we've even seen the U.S., um, you know, sort of reach out and try to pressure other countries into preventing China from obtaining uh, the highest end uh, technology. Um, so I think that, you know, that continues to be an issue that I'm sure is just going to accelerate getting into the rest of this year, given that we've got this incredibly critical presidential election in the U.S. But I'm thinking back to last week with the NVIDIA earnings. Didn't it, the company highlight the problems with these export controls as a reason for the, the, the dismal performance in China? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, there's been, um, you know, quite a bit of pushback from the technological side on a bit of this, um, you know. So, I mean, that's certainly, I think, from a private business perspective, a major concern as to how exactly you kind of operate within these sorts of fields. I think that um, the issue, though, is that it doesn't really seem like the Biden administration is letting up. All that being said, I would point out that, um, you know, independent of this U.S. Chamber of Commerce visit in China, you've seen uh, some other attempts by uh, the U.S. to try to smooth uh, over relations with uh, with China recently, we just saw um, you know a delegation from the Treasury Department uh, make the case to top officials in Beijing that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, wants to visit this year. So it it, it is a really really complicated balance for the U.S. to kind of walk here, where um, you know they obviously have the le- the leverage in terms of trying to um, you know uh, you know continue uh, uh, I- implementing these curbs, but they're also trying to maintain at least somewhat um, you know cool tensions with the uh, uh, relations with China right now. The timing is interesting because it's coming right before the NPC meetings next week, the annual gathering of uh, China's parliament in Beijing. So let's talk a little bit about what we might see out of that. We'll always get the, the target for economic growth during the year. And perhaps we'll get some indication about deficit spending, Jill? Yeah, I think that at this point, so this is, um, you know, the most important uh, kind of political legislative gathering of the year in China. And it's really something that sets the agenda for the rest of the year. So you've got all these lawmakers coming in, sort of reading over policy documents, then they've got to leave this meeting and then go implement all of these rules. Um, As you mentioned, the GDP target is likely going to be announced. A lot of economists think it might be fairly aggressive this year. Um, In terms of deficit spending, I mean, I think that the thing that China has to really sort of, the, the line that China has to walk this year is that they're really concerned about local governments in particular taking on more debt than um, you know they're able to afford. There's been a lot of chatter about whether or not the central government needs to take a larger role um, in terms of uh, you know taking on taking on some of that debt and alleviating some of those burdens among local governments. I think um, what we'd be looking for out of this meeting is um, you know what they're going to be setting that budget at, uh, how much um, in sovereign debt they plan on issuing this year, what exactly that type of that level of calculation looks like, because as we know, uh, China is still dealing with a lot of serious economic pressures that don't really seem to be going away, and they've got to kind of manage what that recovery and growth trajectory looks like. Do you think there will be a mention of the equity market? We've got a new regulator in place and some new policies, a task force now to monitor short selling and uh, things of that nature. I'm wondering whether or not uh, the, the higher ups might address what's been going on with in terms of the equity market and new regulation. I mean, that's certainly a great question. I think that, um, you know, that um, replacement of that top market regulator just a couple of weeks ago was a pretty big surprise on the part of Xi Jinping. I mean, remember, uh, Bloomberg also reported that uh, that she had met with, uh, you know, top uh, market officials to kind of figure out how to stem this market route, which at this point is uh, something that has reached something like six trillion dollars in value. So, I mean, it's certainly top of mind among officials. And we've seen even, um, you know, a major official 
officials, including uh, Premier Lee Chung, actually address concerns about the market route, maybe not in specific terms, but certainly sort of vague pledges to, um, you know, enhance confidence, that kind of thing. So it's possible that something comes out of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be surprised if you do see, um, you know, reports within Chinese state media in the next few weeks about everybody from Xi Jinping to Li Chang to, you know, any other, you know, that this new top market regulator that they have in place, kind of trying to meet with, um, you know, mm. businesses and, and others to assuage concerns about the market. Well, the equity market is one thing, uh, but perhaps bigger would be uh, the property market and uh, perhaps something coming out that would speak to um, building a little bit of momentum in tier one cities, because that's what they've done in the past to try to uh, help downturns. Um, is there anything that's kind of legendary in the making that's coming to rescue the property market? I mean, that's a very big question. Um, I think that at this point, um, I mean, what we just saw happen in China was that some of the banks um, were lowering their loan prime rates, um, uh, specifically in terms of their reference rates for mortgages, trying to facilitate a little bit more borrowing during a a, a really important quarter. We'll see if that leads to anything more soon. Mm. Jill, thanks very much. Jill Deesis, Bloomberg's China EcoGov editor. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Lulu Chen, Bloomberg Asia Investing in Real Estate Team Leader, who joins us from uh, Hong Kong. Lulu, thanks for being with us. First of all, give me a sense of scope. How big is the quant industry in China and what do they do? Well, the quant industry is a booming sector. Um, it's really picked up in the past few years, and it's attracted not only local uh, industry players like Minghong and also uh, Lingjun, but also a lot of foreign players like Di Sha and also uh, Two Sigma. Um, so, so uh, you know, it, it's it's a, a, a sector that's been gaining quite a bit of attraction and managing some 1.58 trillion yuan and combined assets. I think we're quite curious, too, the impact on international investors. You meant, uh, mentioned that there were some players like D.E. Shaw in this, but for other international investors, does this make them more nervous about investing in China? So the effect on international uh, investors, a couple of fronts, um, direct impact, not so much, because if you look at DHA and Two Sigma, um, the strategies that they're focused on was not the target of these crackdowns. Um, and then there's also the requirement, the change in regulatory requirement that now expands the scope of record reporting on quant trading strategies to offshore investors via the mainland to Hong Kong trading link. So that could affect some investors. And then there's the broader sentiment, right? The 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 moves that we've seen are pretty extreme. The scenes coming out of China, um, you know, one fund lost their access to the market completely. Another one got their short bidding um, orders rejected by brokers and then regulators sending people out in person onto the trading floors to monitor their trading strategies. Um, the This reinforces the concerns that 
that international investors have, which is the lack of consistency and transparency through these verbal window guidances. Um, and and you know that that is the the the, the bigger fallout uh, out of this um, uh, series of events. I'm wondering whether there is a bit of blame on the part of Beijing focusing on the quant funds because they do use computer algorithms to execute their their trades. Whether Beijing feels as though um, some of the market weakness that we have seen recently is is due to these quant strategies. Yeah, that that is the narrative coming out that quants quants are to be blamed for the meltdown that we've seen. And and what's really happened is um, a lot of these quants were crowded in trades and the smaller stocks in China. Um, they are prone to uh, more prone to mispricing and more profitable for computer programs to exploit. And at the start of the year, when there was a sharp decline in small cap stocks, that prompted quant stock uh, pro- quant products with heavy exposure to trim holdings, this massive sell-off triggered losses in derivatives known as snowballs, and it caused a quant quake, if you will, and forcing a lot of brokerages to dump index futures as well. And and so it really pushed up the hedging costs for market-neutral products, and and some of the more leveraged ones were really hit, um, forcing them to unwind positions even more, and that cascaded into a spiraling effect in the market. The CSRC says that these are not really targeting um, short selling, but rather abnormal trading. How does the CSRC actually categorize abnormal trading? I think the best way to look at it is who who they penalized and looking at Lingjun, which is one of the most uh, influential quant f- funds in China. They lost access to the market for three days for dumping uh, a combined 2.5 billion billion yuan of shares within a minute um, when trading resumed on uh, on Monday following the holiday. And so, in 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 this case, they the their crime was dumping shares in a very short span of time and hence uh, affecting markets. So the regulator now has a new leader. Uh, I guess they've uh, referred to this person in a number of ways. You, you can maybe unpack that a little bit for me, but I'm wondering whether or not in your view, Lulu, you cover this on a daily basis, whether there's going to be a lot more uh, heavy hand when it comes to uh, new regulations in China. Well, when Wu Qing stepped into the position, one of his remits was to stem the market route. And to a certain extent, he has managed to do that. If you look at Asia market right now, um, it's rebounding. Um, he does have a, a reputation for being uh, the broker butcher um, in the past, issuing quite severe punishments and clampdowns on brokerages. So um, you're, the Beijing has brought in a, a regulator head who is known for his um, strong hand, a strong armed approach towards regulating markets. And I think for the short term, yes, it's helping the rebound. But longer term, people are asking whether these measures. In about 30 seconds or so, Lulu, um, what are we seeing at the moment from the so-called national team? Um, So Bloomberg previously reported that the national team was thinking of uh, introducing a stabilization fund of $298 billion, and that that money coming from offshore brokerages and investment institutions could be used to stabilize some of the the markets in China. Um, 
we we suspect that some of that money is now at play, and that's why part of the rebound is happening. Lulu, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your expertise. Lulu Chen, Bloomberg Asia Investing and Real Estate Team Leader. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Cole Smead is joining us here in our studios, the CEO and portfolio manager at Smead Capital Management. Cole, great to have you with us. We've just been chatting a little bit about the conditions in the marketplace. For a value shop like yours, uh, you and your dad are legendary for pushing value companies. Uh, what's the environment like at the moment? Well, use, use Buffett's letter that came out on Saturday morning. I think that's a pretty good picture. <clears throat> um, Buffett's overwhelming uh, picture was... We find no opportunities, and the stock market's a casino. You know, those are the excerpts out of his letter that I thought a lot about. Now, he's saying in the $10 billion-plus investment arena that Berkshire has to deal with, which is not true for all investors, admittedly. Exactly. But let's call a spade a spade. The most exciting companies in America today are the kind of companies that you could place $10 billion into because they're trillion, $2 trillion market caps. So I think it's really interesting. Here's the greatest investor of all time saying, we often have financial problems from time to time. Berkshire will stand there ready to make investments when those arise. And yet you'd go to most U.S. equity investors and they think this is just peachy keen. This is awesome. Who cares? These are the same investors that thought inflation was never going to be a real issue. Uh, They think inflation will never be an issue in the future. And they also thought the Fed would have to begin cutting rates pretty fast this year, um, starting in March. And now we sit in, you know, roughly March and it's not looking like till probably July or possibly later. And so I just say that because the environment is very poor for taking equity risks in the United States. Um, And to just kind of give, you know, I'm not saying it's bad everywhere. That's, That's not the point of this. This, what's going on in the United States reminds us of, you know, what happens about every decade in certain markets around the world. So for example, in 2010, it was Chinese companies that were just greatly overpriced. Go look at the banks and all the companies that comprise that. They're nowhere near where they were. Um, go look at Japan in 89-90. Same kind of thing. Oil stocks in 1980. Sure, sure. But, but you know, Buffett himself found value in Japan with those. I started off as you were just coming up the stairs. Correct. Talking about those trading houses yeah. uh, in Japan. So there are opportunities out there. Well, yeah, no, there's no question about that. But, you know, Buffett, <clears throat> Buffett is, he's a born and raised kid in Omaha. His preference, like he said, letter was U.S. companies. Um, you don't have to be like Warren Buffett, is how I look at it. So to your point, I think, you know, we talk about the, the, the monkey throwing darts to pick stocks. I think the monkey can walk into a room with every non-U.S. indice on the board and throw a dart and hit a stock market or stock exchange or indice abroad that will beat the S&P 500. We think the, the outcomes in the S&P will probably be 0% returns over a decade, which that's not counting inflation. And so you just think about the likelihood of, of success, um, if that's your hurdle rate, it's very attractive. 
attractive for non-U.S. investors. Now, the, the one other thing I'll add is I think it's interesting to see uh, more American-style business practices showing up. So use, use what's gone on in the Japanese trading companies that Buffett's involved in. They've been buying back stock. That's historically not a Japanese thing. That's an American thing. Look at Unicredit in Europe. They're buying back a lot of stock. So I think it's really interesting to watch these cheap prices run into very shareholder-friendly things. And really good money could be made, as been seen with those Japanese trading houses. So what if that dart lands on China? Well, it's funny. Uh, so I, it? I, think, I, think, <laughs> I don't I, think there are a lot of people who are laughing in China. Well, they're, they're not laughing there because they're having to deal with their own economic problems that they created. I mean, this is an all-volunteer army. Don't forget that. So um, here's a picture of pricing, though. So I, you know, I, I, I hopped the taxi in here. It was $30. That's one of the cheapest taxis I'll hop in any American city, in any major city in the world. And so what I, I think a lot about is the activity, the cost of activity in places like China are just very different than they were five or 10 years ago relative to the rest of the world. Um, China's a time game. It will take time to heal their credit markets and their property markets, but they're not starting from a point where people are overpaying for assets like they did not too long ago, a decade ago. You see, I knew that this environment wouldn't be that pleasing to you, but actually in the United States, you know, there, there are a lot of companies uh, either in the, the Russell 2000 mm -hmm. or in industrials or in the financial sector uh, that are not expensive. I mean, obviously, over the past uh, 18 months, we've been dominated by Magnificent Seven and, and uh, their ilk. Uh, doesn't it actually give you plenty of opportunities there to, to find companies? You know, on the U.S. side of our, our portfolios, um, we really need, like, I'll call it a minimum of $5 billion. And I even think that's probably like a, from a market cap perspective. And I think that's probably on the lowest threshold we could take, to be downright honest. And um, even that, you're now in a mid-cap space. So to your point, the, again, the idea is not that all U.S. stocks are stupid. Okay, that, that's not the overarching idea. It's the composition of the S&P 500, which, as we all could note, it's very well, don't concentrated. Don't buy the index. Don't Correct. buy the index. It's, it's a non-index game. But just to, I mean, just to, I don't think people understand how concentrated it is. We know the Magnificent Seven, but let me just throw out some numbers to you. If you reconstituted what's in communication services today and in consumer discretionary that used to be in technology, the, the tech bubble peaked with 28% in technology. We're at 45 if we build up the old tech and it's growing. Okay, mm. so again, you know, I, it's crazy when I tell people this reminds me of Japan in '89. Why? Well, because what what are non-U.S. companies doing? They're adopting American-style business practices and capital allocation, just like all the American companies wanted to get super lean and be a, be a lot more like the Japanese companies in the early 1990s. Uh, this is a game that ends in misery, and I think that's why Buffett. To go back to the original point, Buffett is playing this game of when people start acting more sane, I'll be a buyer. Until then. I'm just going to sit here, buy my time, collect my 5% in short-term T-bills, uh, which is the best rate he's got on his cash really going back for 20 years or so more. Maybe he's waiting for peak insanity. And I don't know that we're there yet. And, and to go back to the bursting of the tech bubble, one of the things yeah. that's very different about that environment versus where we are today, the Fed was in a very tight situation and was mm -hmm. unable to tighten until March of 2000. Right sure. now, we're eagerly anticipating rate cuts. And, and many people are saying that could potentially provide the next leg up. You don't agree with that? Well, so, you know, if you use the late 1990s, um, you know, we had the Asian contagion in 98. So what did the Fed do? The Fed alleviated pressure, reduced rates, 
because of that situation. The bigger problem happened with long-term capital because the banks had their own capital Correct. at that hedge fund. And that's when Correct. the aggressive cutting happened. There were three consecutive 25 basis point cuts as a result of the implosion of long-term capital. But it's going a, into a, Y2K, they yeah. were terrified of problems in the system. And even though you could have made the argument that mm -hmm. rates needed to be much higher, the Fed wasn't willing to do it because of the fear over a Y2K problem. Well, correct. And you got to remember, Greenspan was a stockbroker. Greenspan was more often willing to lean into problems. And I know we talk about the Greenspan put, but you have to understand the modern U.S. Federal Reserve Bank is, an arch is architected ultimately by Ben Bernanke. His 04 speech, The Great Moderation, is considered the novel piece to lead the future of the central bank. And the doctrine is you don't you don't lean into problems you clean them up after they're done the only problem is for us as investors individually the fed's not going to say great i'm going to clean you guys up and i'm going to recapitalize your lives because you did mm. stupid things as an ind individual investors no they clean up the system but the dead bodies still go to the morgue that's the problem i'm curious whether you agree with david einhorn that passive is kind of killing you value guys uh, you know what? Uh, the secret to life is weak competition. I don't agree with Einhorn whatsoever because sitting there bemoaning that, that gives you great prices for the things that others aren't interested in. That is your opportunity. Um, and when I, you know, he's done a couple interviews and, and I think your colleague Shanali has done a wonderful job in one of those interviews kind of fleshing some of that out. I, I don't agree with that. No one's going to cry for a billionaire buying value stocks. See, I, I, I wouldn't either. I thought you might be going there because you talked about uh, how the concentration of the market was so much in the big tech, 45%, I think you said. And so that people who commit money passively, money's going to go to them, even though they don't want it to. Well, correct. It's not going to go to you. And you want it to go to you and your company. Except so. that you got to remember, dogs chase cars and people chase stocks. Yeah. And so the problem with that is when they start selling, it's going to come right out of the leverage points that All it's right. did. We got to go, Cole. We've already gone over. Cole Smead, CEO and portfolio manager, Smead Capital Management. This is Bloomberg. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen, and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.